Welcome to the In the Scriptures podcast. The following Bible lesson was previously recorded. Last week I had the opportunity to participate in a panel discussion at Lucas Street Church of Christ in Athens, and um, it went on not only Wednesday night, but also Thursday night and Friday night, and the primary topic of that um, series of discussions was returning to the Creator and talking about the need for restoration and specifically about God's restoring power, that He has the power to restore and reconcile mankind to himself. And in looking at that over the last few weeks in preparation for that discussion and then being there that night, there was so much of that that really kind of touched me deep in my heart. So I want to share some of that with you today, not so much even really specifically what was actually discussed in my night of the discussion, but really this bigger idea of being reconciled to God. You and I have probably experienced times in our lives where we have felt um, some space or gap or division between us and someone else, where there was a need for a relationship to be reconciled. And you and I, from our experiences in this life, know that that can be a difficult task. Uh, that can be something that takes time. That can be something that takes tears. Uh, that can be something that takes a whole lot of forgiveness and work. Uh, it can be something that seemingly on our part requires a lot of action and uh, making up for things, so to speak, doing something to overcome the hurt and the pain and whatever has created the distance. And so we know, I think when we force ourselves to stop and think about it, we know what being reconciled really means and what it takes uh, in that regard. But to think about the reality of our need to be reconciled to God takes all of those things to a much higher level, uh, to a spiritual level, to an eternal level. And that's what I want us to try to wrap our mind around as much as we can today and, and think about this need to be reconciled to God. We certainly would feel the, the pull on our heartstrings to be reconciled to a loved one, to a friend, to a child, to a grandchild, to a neighbor, whatever it might be. But I, I dare say that maybe we do not, by nature, if you will, feel the need to be reconciled to God. And I would kind of submit as my thesis today, in a sense, that that's a primary problem in our world, that there's not a sense of need to be reconciled to God. And without knowing that need, without feeling that distance and that gap, that loss of relationship with God, without all of that being something that we can recognize and something that we can internalize, then why would we? 
understand our reconciling to God. No, we really wouldn't. There are many things that kind of go into that. And before I even get into the slides that are very brief this morning, I, I would invite you to hold your, your fingers there at 2 Corinthians 5. That's going to be the text that we primarily deal with today. But I want to remind you of just a few basic things about our need to be reconciled in the first place. Okay? When we think about the entire story of mankind's history, it begins with man in the Garden of Eden created by God in a very personal relationship with God. Where God and man spoke to one another. And you and I, as we sit here today, would really have a hard time even fathoming, fathoming, well, I can't say the word, being able to fathom the idea of being in the same location as God himself, enough to be able to have a conversation with him. Hang out on that thought for just a moment, and let me ask this question. If you could have been Adam or Eve in the Garden of Eden, and if you did have day-to-day -day conversation with God, might you have a greater sense of a need to be reconciled if you were ever separated from him? Well, absolutely, right? And we know as the story unfolds there, in, and it's not just a story, but the history unfolds in Genesis that Adam and Eve are separated from God because the devil comes and he tempts Eve and then through that tempts Adam and they eat of the forbidden fruit of the tree in the midst of the Garden of Eden that God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And when they ate, their eyes were opened to good and evil. They were ashamed. They knew that they had rebelled against God, that they had transgressed what God had said, and God challenged them on that, but ultimately God judged them on that, and God sent them out of the garden, cursed the ground, cursed the womb of the woman, and ultimately brought a brokenness to all the world because sin had entered the world at that time. But it wasn't just that there was brokenness and sin. One of the things maybe we don't talk about enough is that at that point in time came separation. God was now separated from creation. God couldn't be in the presence of sin. We, I won't go through all the scriptures, but the scriptures teach that very clearly that God could not be in the presence of sin. And this all really makes sense when you dig in and you think about it spiritually that if there is a God and he is the author of all things that are good and all things that are righteous and now this one has rebelled Satan himself tempted mankind and mankind has followed as well and now they have chosen evil in the sight of this holy and just God there is now a natural separation let alone the fact that God has said there is a real separation here and so there's separation and there has been ever since. As you go through the Old Testament history of God's people, it's a constant state of turmoil, up and down. At times, God is near to the people because the people have drawn near to him. And at times, it seems that God is far from the people because the people have drawn away from him by following evil. And they're not trusting God, not believing God, not obeying God, not praising God, not worshiping God. And there's separation. And yet, through all of this, there's this struggle because there's the obvious need to get back to just being reconciled to God. Completely. 
without this awkward separation between all of you. And that wasn't going to happen through the judges. That wasn't going to happen through the kings. That wasn't going to happen even through the prophets. It wasn't going to happen by temple worship. It wasn't going to be happening by offering bulls and goats on altars. No, we learned through the prophetic word that ultimately it was going to happen through the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God who would come into the world. And so Jesus himself said, famously, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I want you to think about those two outcomes for a moment. If we're separated from God, and that's the way it's always going to be, then that's a perishing, isn't it? You think about it, if you and your family were on a ship sailing across the Atlantic, some of your family fell overboard. In the moment that they fell overboard, you would be scrambling to throw life preservers, to jump in a lifeboat, to go after them, because they are in danger of what? Perishing, right? They've been separated from you off of the boat. They've been separated from safety. They have been brought into the danger of death. And for, for some span of time, you know there's separation, but there's still hope. But searches like that eventually what? End. And when the search ends and those that were lost are not found, the separation is now permanent. They have perished. Do you see that that's a parallel of our existence? That if we remain separated from God, we are doomed to perish? That unless we are reconciled to God, we will eternally perish, as the Scriptures say? So the need for reconciliation is very real. It has been all along. And that's ultimately the cry of, of God to us through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, through what he has done to the New Testament writers. It's the work of the church, a ministry of reconciliation. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But in 2 Corinthians 5, back to the text that was read, there in verse 18, the statement is, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself, through Jesus Christ. So who does the reconciling? God does. Remember, you and I are the ones that are lost at sea. We need the lifeline thrown to us. It's futile to swim. It's futile to struggle. It's futile to think we're going to do it on our own. Not going to happen. It's God who has done it. In 2 Corinthians, as Paul is writing this letter, we're jumping into it right in the middle. He has already talked about Christ's gospel, the good news, and the fact that Jesus is who is being preached. 
and that it's through Jesus that this righteousness and gift of God has come. He has already talked about those things. So I'm kind of jumping into it in the middle. And you say, well, this sounds like past tense that he's already reconciled. Well, because Paul's already talked about the whole story and that God reconciled us. How? Just as Jesus said it, that he gave his only begotten son. He's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And, and in that, I just want to hang out on this question that I kind of introduced everything with, and that is, why? Why must we be reconciled? Well, look right here in this text in verse 19. It says, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You see, it's not just that, well, we're a victim of what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. It's not just that. Let me give you a harrowing thought to hang out on for a moment. Every one of us have done what has been forbidden. In other words, in our own lives, had we been in a close relationship with God, we would have been kicked out too. Because every one of us have done what is forbidden. 1 John 3, verse 4 in the King James Version says, Sin is the transgression of a law of God. Raise your hand if you have never transgressed the law of God. Don't raise your hand. That would be embarrassing. I'll put mine back down real quick. Romans 3, 23 says, All have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. Why must we be reconciled? Can I get real blunt with you? Because you sinned. Because I sinned. And sin is transgression of God's law. And God has said there must be a price paid for that. It demands a reconciling price, an atonement, a redemption. Well, the atonement and the redemption was the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the penalty to be paid for sins was the blood of bulls and goats. It was sacrifices offered of animals and such. Not only animals, but other sacrifices were made too. And through those sacrifices, God was accepting a penance, if you will, of redemptive payment to curb his wrath so that he didn't just destroy everybody. But you know, in the days of Noah, God reconciled man and reconciled sins and evil in a much more sweeping way, didn't he? In the days of Noah, he found Noah and his family that were faithful and righteous, and yet everyone else's thoughts were only evil continually, and God regretted that he had made man. And so God destroyed the entire world, except for Noah and his family, with the flood. Now, don't you think about that for a second? Is your family Noah's family? Your family know his family? 
If not, where would we have been? Would the separation from God have been real in those days? Absolutely. See, I think we just don't give it enough thought to realize that sin as the transgression of the law of God means there will be consequences. And here's an interesting thought about it. In the world today, good and evil, and pretty much all parts of the world and society recognize that, although some more so than others, and some have a really kind of strange concept of what's good and what's evil and so forth. But the general idea that there is good and there is evil is pervasive throughout all of the world. Now, I want you to just ask the basic question, who authored all that? Did some scientist author all that? Did some brilliant, wise man decide what was good and what was evil? No, you see, the whole thing points to God, an ultimate author of good and evil. And mankind is constantly wrestling with the practice of that good and evil. Constant wrestling with the practice of good and evil is actually further evidence that we need to be reconciled because we ain't good enough to do this. Even the best of us, as we try to do the best we can, fail repeatedly. Do you see the need to be reconciled? If I just ask the general question, does the United States of America need to be reconciled to God? Well, I think just about anybody these days would say, yeah. Do the European countries, is the Far East, Hot topic, Russia, do all these people need to be reconciled to God? Yet we say yes. Why? Because we see evil in the world. And when we see evil in the world, who do we know is at a distance? God. Do we realize that Christ went to the cross for the smallest, as we see it, of sins? Every last one of them. We must be reconciled to God. Because God was not imputing trespasses to each of us. If he did, if he did, it should have been us on a cross. Instead of Christ. And instead, what we read there in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 is that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. He imputed sin on him, not on us, but on him in our place that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. We're not going to become righteousness of God on our own, are we? It's pretty evident, isn't it? If we hadn't figured it out by now, are we going to figure it out? No, we're not. So God had this redemptive plan to reconcile us. We must be reconciled. Can we see that? Also, how are we reconciled? Do you see that in verse 21? It was through Jesus. Now hold your place there in that, in 2 Corinthians and come with me over to Romans chapter 6. In Romans 5, there's talk about how sin spread to all mankind through one man, Adam, and how that the free gift of eternal life comes through one man, Jesus Christ. And then as he's talking about that, he gets to this point of that that's a great grace that has been given to us, right? That's not what we did. That's what God did. That is an amazing grace that God sent his son 
to become sin for us. That's, I mean, seriously, who doesn't sign up for that? God, don't punish me, punish somebody else. I mean, it sounds harsh, but I mean, if, if it's the gift and he's willing, and that's, then we'd be silly not to realize what a great grace that is. And it's irresistible in a sense because did we have any say-so in it? Did we say, hey, God, I'll take Jesus? No, God said, here's Jesus. He sent him. He gave the grace, us not knowing that we needed to ask for it even, really. And so then we get to this point of, okay, well, what an amazing grace that that is. And the question comes in chapter 6, verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's kind of like, well, if God did it all through Jesus, home free, right? But that's not what Paul says. He says, certainly not. He says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Oh, there's, a, there's something that we do to close this gap, to attain this reconciliation, to be in God's fellowship and have a relationship with him. And so he says in verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In verse 5 he says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of of his resurrection. Now he goes on and keeps explaining that. But we'll stop there and make the point. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin. To be sin for us. So now what's God telling us to do? Be buried with him in baptism. And in that symbolic likeness of what Jesus did. In going to the grave on our behalf. We're united with him to wash away our sins, to come in contact with the blood of Christ, this power, redemptive plan that God has had, and to rise for newness of life and hopes of resurrection through Jesus. That's what he's saying there in Romans 6. How are we reconciled? Well, we're reconciled in Christ. In Christ. Simple question this morning to everybody here. Are you in Christ? It's like for Noah and his family, in that day when God was going to destroy all of the evil on the face of the earth, separate himself from that, let that perish, and start anew, afresh, a new creature, a new creation, the key would have been, are you in the ark? Right? Now the key is, are you in Christ? That's how you reconcile. Christ became sin on your behalf. God requires you to recognize that and being united with Christ. Are you in Christ? And we could talk all day long about these steps. And so the steps take care of themselves when you and I recognize that what God has said in his word is that we must be united with Christ. When you're united with Christ, you will repent of your sin. That's what he says here, right? We're not going to continue in it. You're going to stop sinning. The things that put Christ on the cross that you might do now, you've got to stop. 
You ought to want to stop them when you realize that that's what put Christ on the cross. I've always kind of wanted to in a sermon like this to have like a two by four up here and a big, you know, spike or something. And when I get to that point of it, like draw back some big mallet and hit that spike and be like, I mean, seriously, guys, that's what put Christ on the cross. Why would we want to keep doing it? That's just ludicrous. That's why here, certainly not. We're not going to continue in sin. That, my friends, is repentance. We're going to change. Knowing that those things put Christ on the cross, not going to do it anymore. Not going to tell anybody else to do it anymore. Not going to encourage anybody else to do it anymore. That's got to change. It's a must. It's not a, well, do I have to do that, repent? No, it's obvious. It's obvious. That's what we should do and what we ought to want to do if we have come to Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, we read, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. When were you washed? But you were sanctified. When were you sanctified? But you were justified. When were you justified? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. When you were united with Christ, you were washed and sanctified and justified. And so then you were those things, not anymore. There in Romans 6, if you keep reading from where we stopped, he talks about the old man of sin that's put away. Buried, dead, no longer a slave to that, instead a slave to God. We are reconciled when we are united with Christ. Look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning there in verse 14, and think about this a little further. When? When is this happening? 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, let me insert who he's talking about, that if Jesus died for all, then all died. Then all believers died. All believers died. So think about it again. He's a substitution death for you and me. So when he died, God views it as though we died if we are believers united to Christ. If we reject him, the Hebrew writer says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You're not going to get another substitution. So don't reject him. You're not going to be able to kill enough bulls and goats. There's not another substitution that will equate what Jesus has done. So when Jesus died for all, then all died. All believers died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him, for Jesus, who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we are known, uh, we know him thus no longer. Now notice verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, here's this, united in Christ, 
He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When are we reconciled? When we are united with Christ. When we are in Christ. Are you in Christ? That's the key question. It's really not so much about wrestling about the how. The how is pretty obvious if you just are willing to read what it says. And I kind of wonder if we argue so much about these details of what's to be done that we forget why it's being done. It's being done to be united with Christ. To be in contact with that substitution for our sins. So that our sins, visualize it, so that your sins, my sins, are imputed on Christ in His death, not on us. That's the must to be reconciled to God. God must see the sin paid for. Do you have any debts? Don't raise your hand. That could be embarrassing. Your debts were called on you right here today, immediately. Could you pay them all? If a generous donor stepped forward and said, let them call your debts, I'll pay for them. How long would it take for you to sign up for that? most generous donor that we could ever know is Jesus Christ. He stepped forward to pay our sin debt. A debt we cannot pay. And we can work all of our lives and we'll never be able to pay it. We are reconciled when we are united with Christ. So are you reconciled? I mean, that's the great question, isn't it? Are you? That's really between you and God and Christ, the Spirit. You know in your heart, and I dare say that even right now today, that this is convicting enough by the Word of God for you to know if there's a separation between you and God. And if you feel that space of separation, then that answers this question in the negative. You're not reconciled to God. Those who have been reconciled at one time even can fall away. Scriptures clearly teach that. We can fall from grace. We can trample again the Son of God under our feet. We can crucify again our Lord and our Savior afresh. That's why we're taught clearly through the Scriptures then to again repent and pray that we can be forgiven. Confess our faults one to another and pray for one another that we can again be forgiven. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is just as powerful today as it was the day that you were buried with him in baptism. It must be for God's promises to hold true. That doesn't mean you continue in sin. Certainly not. It means be reconciled to God. A further question in this, 
for those who maybe say, well, I, I believe I'm fully reconciled to God. Did you catch the part in the text that says that we're now ministers of reconciliation? Are you a minister of reconciliation? Is this the message you take to those who you love and you care about? We sing the song, Rescue the Perishing. Right? They're perishing. And we have a span of time right now to take this message to them. But that time will end either by way of them passing from this life or by the Lord's return. It's only a span of time for us to be ministers of reconciliation. And so the ultimate message is be reconciled, right? Be reconciled. God, do you see that in verse 20? Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, what? Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Won't you do that today? Better yet, won't you do it every day? Close the gap of separation by God's plan. Not yours, not mine, not the world's, but by God's plan that we come united with Christ on a daily basis. Following after him, living for him, calling him Lord, bowing our knee to him. Praising Him for what He has done. Begging mercy and forgiveness upon the power of His blood that was shed for us. Confessing our sins openly, knowing that our sins put Him on the cross. That's the way we should live. And constantly be reconciled to God. If we could help you today in some way. There's no greater thing that you can do than be sure that in the here and now, and in every moment you can, that you have your life right with your God. The most important thing that any of us will ever do. And so take the time. We'll take it with you. to Do whatever you need today, according to the scriptures, to be reconciled to God. Won't you come? While we stand and sing.